who we came here to be, living and experiencing life in a way that is authentically ours and remaining true to ourselves, is incredibly difficult when, from our earliest days, we become encumbered with the experiences of culture, the programming of society, and the big and small traumas of life. Whether or not we've been through catastrophic events or situations, the low-level stress of life, of getting by and of doing and being our best every day, in a world that seems, according to the 24-hour news cycle, increasingly broken and divided, is traumatic. As we've explored in previous episodes of this podcast, our emotional, mental, physical and spiritual selves are all closely interlinked, often to the point of being indiscernible from one another. So when negative patterns appear repeatedly in our behaviour, in our mental and emotional well-being, our health, or even our circumstances, the cause of our problems might just as likely come from within us as from without. I'm Chris Brock, and this is Conversations on Living, a podcast about being well, doing well, and living well. Today I'm joined by psychologist, doctor, and meditation teacher, Radley Weininger, who says that with compassion, loving self-awareness, and a willingness to forgive and let go, we can unpick the deep-seated traumas that cause the negative patterns that prevent us from being who we really are and from having the life experiences we came here to have. Radley is the author of Heart Medicine, How to Stop Painful Patterns and Find Peace and Freedom, a book that helps us to identify our emotional and behavioural patterns, patterns that she calls long-standing, recurrent, painful patterns of hurt, or lerps for fun, uh, through the lens of loving awareness. Without self-judgment or blame, learning to hold ourselves as we would hold a dear friend with space and grace. If you want to know how highly recommended the book comes, then just know that the foreword was written by His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Joanna Macy. So that's a pretty good testimonial indeed. You can find out more about Radley and her book at www.radleyweiningerphd.com and also at mindfulheartprograms.org. And of course, all of these links will be in the show notes. And before we get into it, just a quick word about Plane. So Plane is the meditation game that I refer to every week. And if you're looking to get into mindfulness and meditation but don't know where to start, and if video games are your thing, then Plane is definitely worth a look. Uh, it's uh, available online at plane.co, that's P-L-A-Y-N-E.co. And uh, you can also find it if you search for a meditation game in Google. It's normally the first one that pops up. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get it. I would love it if you did that because it would show that uh, you know you're digging what we're putting out there. Because we're having some amazing conversations about how to really step up to life, so that life will step up to meet us. And uh, you can also find out more about the other episodes at our website. That's conversationsonliving.com. And uh, if you explore uh, there and hang around a bit, you can also find out about some of my writings, uh, my books, and also there are some meditations on there as well. And if you want to carry on the conversation, you can also sign up to our Facebook group. Just search for Conversations on Living. Now, enough about that. Time to get into this conversation with the amazing uh, Radley Weininger. And I hope you'll enjoy this. And please don't forget to let us know what you think. We're easy to find. Just uh, send us a message or comment on the podcast or join the Facebook group. All right. Thanks for that. Radhuli, thank you so much for, for giving up some time. You're in Santa Barbara and uh, I'm just outside London. And we're here to talk about heart medicine, which is your, your book and your kind of approach to, to um, understanding where our, our kind of behavioral patterns come from, our mental and emotional patterns, and diving into the kind of source of those patterns that keep us stuck if you like or in negative kind of um negative situations and then exploring how we can kind of unravel those and pick apart those patterns to, to kind of heal ourselves and, and move forward so if you could maybe kind of kick us off with a little bit of an introduction about what heart medicine is and how we can all um, embrace a bit of this kind of understanding into our lives Yes, you know, I guess maybe through my own history, became really curious how we have these knots in our psyche, these wounds that seem to, in their dynamic, repeat themselves in their flavor, in their atmosphere, you might say. May that they be around rejection or abandonment or uh, being left out or competition or 
um, anger and violence, whatever it is, it seems to repeat themselves with different actors in different environments. And, um, you know, since, um, well, the early 80s, I have been a really serious meditator. I started in a monastery in Sri Lanka, and that's when I was still in medical school in Germany. And then when I finished that and I came to the States, I got my PhD in clinical psychology and I work in my practice. And I always felt that we needed help from East and West to work with these patterns. You know, Jung and Freud saw them, they called them complexes. And it was actually Jack Cornfield, my, my mentor, who said, Radley, find a new word. <laughs> and then I said, long-standing recurrent painful patterns. And he said, that's too long. And I said, lurps. <laughs> and uh, I wondered about it for a while, but people really liked the idea of lurps because it's like an anomatopoeia, you know, it feels like it sounds. You get kind of lurped and slimed and, you know. Yeah. And so, um, and I felt that, um, Western psychology helps us to understand, you know, making unconscious conscious, understanding what happened in our childhood, um, talking about it, maybe feeling it. And uh, it, however, it didn't help that much to really do something different. You know, so it made, I felt me and others very self-conscious oh yeah my mother did this and that but it didn't really help to with this change and then with the east you know those patterns are called samskaras or shankaras in pali or kleshas and they believe they're actually even older they are passed on in our mind streams and actually, I don't find it that important where exactly they come from. It's more important. They're very old. You know, whether um, it's... Hmm? I was going to say, I mean, we often think of trauma as being something that happened to us in the past. It might be childhood trauma or some kind of incident or something like that. But it, yeah. could it be something kind of cultural as well? Something that's been programmed into us by the, the status quo or the environment we're, we're kind of born into, something like that? Definitely, you know, man, uh, you could see trauma with a big T or a little T. A big T might be uh, we had a huge accident or um, a parent died or there was war. You know, I'm just thinking of the war right now. How many people, you know, will have trauma effects from what is happening now? And we get re-traumatized by just seeing it relentlessly on TV. You know, often it brings up our old fears from being not safe from, from childhood. So I think all of those uh, comes together. And then there's the little T, which is maybe unloveless uh, atmospheres where we had maybe parents that fed and closed us but didn't love us or didn't express their loves or didn't want to see who we are and so uh, that's there and I think then there is the cultural tea you know uh, I think now there's a lot said about what it's like to grow up in poverty, whether it's in the UK or in America or living in a really violent neighborhood or, and, um, or maybe uh, being a refugee yourself, being stuck in a camp or running away from, uh, from airplanes. So I think uh, there is huge environmental influence, and I think it all intermingles. The small T, the big T, and the environmental T uh, trauma all uh, intermixes and comes together. Because it's deeply unhealthy, isn't it? I've just had a conversation just last, not, not the last podcast, but the podcast previous to this, and we were talking about the kind of exposure to the the constant news cycle 
and it actually keeps us in a heightened uh, sense of stress. And if you're already kind of, you know, traumatized by some of these big T incidents, if you have come from a, a war zone anyway, or you have kind of been in an abusive relationship or something like that, it can be enough to really harm you both physically and emotionally. So how, how do we go about starting to, to fix this? I mean, is it something that we have to say, mm. this is here every day and I need to just have a, an easygoing lifestyle? Or is, it, is there more to it than that? Do we have to do the hard work and get into the shadows? Yeah, actually, I think the second, uh, we have to go into the shadows. And uh, I think the answer is not to just avoid life and make a big wall around us. And if we are privileged to kind of just lock everybody else out, it's more, uh, one of my teachers, Alan Wallace said, we can't uh, plaster the whole earth with leather so we don't step on anything hard. It's better to put sneakers on. And so what are these sneakers? You know, so I think, how can we be able to be present with the suffering. And that doesn't mean we have to watch TV morning tonight. You know, I, I actually read The Guardian <laughs> and uh, it's my one paper newspaper I'm getting and the Washington Post or whatever it is and uh, read the headlines rather than being incessantly fed. So I still wanna know what's going on, especially as a post-war German and my grandfather was um, prosecuted by the Nazis because he was a historian and he spoke up. But so I know how bad it is if you don't speak up, if you don't, if you just kind of go underground. So I think there is value in staying present and, and engaged, but I think we need tools, we need sneakers like Alan Wallace says, to be able to do that. It reminds me of a, a quote from Muhammad Ali, the, the championship boxer. He said, yeah. you know, sometimes it's not the mountain you climb that wears you out, but it's the pebble in your shoe. You know, so it's the thing that you carry with you that is actually the thing that is kind of wearing you down. That probably is the lerp. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you, how do you, you know, develop a kind of I hate to use the word resilience because I think these days that that word everyone says oh you need to be more resi resilient and it's uh, almost um, an in inauthentic word but how do we learn to live gently but also still be present in a world that sometimes isn't very gentle? Uh, I think uh, I, I hear two questions with that one is how to work with these ancient patterns and then also how to just live uh, um, awake and engaged. Yeah. So I think, uh, and, and the intermix, you know, but I think there is definitely a time, for example, my uh, longstanding pattern came from a sense of rejection and abandonment because my mom had me out of wedlock. She was a young doctor and hit me in an orphanage from her Catholic family for two years. So no wonder I had a sense of, you know, early childhood trauma, which made me a bit raw. So understanding that and maybe having therapy, I had quite a bit of therapy uh, on, about this and uh, started my meditation practice 1980 in, in a monastery in Sri Lanka. So I think that helped to overcome or to at least make it much more mild, you know, so to take the lerp out of the driver's seat into maybe the passenger or the back seat or the trailer. That's go over and grab the steering wheel. It, that's quite, it takes a lot of courage though to do that because you are having to, and this is one of the things that they kind of teach you in, in meditation is that you kind of recognize the feelings, you recognize the thoughts and you just kind of let them be. But actually, in especially in the West, we're, we're kind of taught to keep them, you know, keep them down. Don't show, don't show any emotion. Don't deal with these things because 
if you if you allow them to come up then you're somehow weak or something like that and especially do, in germany and in england yeah especially you know stiff upper lip in the uk yeah um, and but I, i've known friends who have tried meditation and they they didn't like what they found when they got right. quiet and they came face to face with themselves so they they vowed never to do it again um but that is kind of the hard work that we have to do i guess to, in order to um come to peace with ourselves maybe well you know the first noble truth of the buddha is that there's suffering in life you know and i think um for me i had two car accidents and a stomach ulcer in two months in the hospital in my early 20s i got really sick during medical school and um and then I took some time out and went to Sri Lanka then with my boyfriend, 1980. And so I hit uh, literally a wall or let's say the windshield. And, um, and I think I, I just knew I had to stop. Otherwise I may not survive. So it didn't feel quite like, oh, do I want chocolate or vanilla? You know, it felt something was telling me, you know, you better look here. And, and I must have had this real longing to survive and to live and uh, to, to heal, you know. And um, so that carried me forward. And I remember um, when I was first in Sri Lanka, I actually came incidentally to uh, mindfulness meditation or vipassana it was called then uh, i walked one day down a little road international buddhist center road and i thought huh this sounds interesting let me go down this road and it was monsoon it was raining i remember colombo in sri lanka and there was this house with a sign international buddhist center and so I really didn't have a plan. So I rang the bell and some young monk opened and he said, what do you want? And I said, I don't know. And he said, that is very good. Follow me. <laughs> and then he led me through this big, quite big monastery into the basement. Everybody was in the basement, the coolest place, you know, it was very hot there. And there were these really old monks sitting there and he had me sit in front of the oldest monk. He looked like a little mummy. And, uh, and first I thought, what is this? And so then he opened his eyes and it felt like he looked straight through me, you know, it's like in here, out there. And there was just a sense of, wow, he knows everything. But there's peace, you know, I, I didn't verbalize it, but that was the feeling. And then he said, so what do you want? And I said, I don't know. I want to learn. I don't know where it came from. It just came somewhere out of me that I wanted to learn. And then he said, come every morning at 9.15. And uh, uh, which I did actually just for you know, a few times, and then uh, he died actually a few weeks later. And uh, I found out later from Jack Cornfield, who knew him, that he was the head monk of Sri Lanka. And he was very close to his death. So I must have reached him at a very, whatever, special moment. And, uh, and I just, when I felt that kind of peace there, and I had come from a very raw, kind of banged up, upset kind of place. And suddenly all that was gone. So it was maybe a moment of grace, you might say. I thought, that's what I want. <laughs> that's what I want. And so then I found my way into a monastery there where they did 10-day, four-week retreats where I stayed until my visa went out. I slept my poor boyfriend there. He wanted rather to go to the beach, but I did that. And so, and so I started, and you know, you're right. It's hard to sit. I remember at first just, and they had to sit for a whole hour, you know, 1980 in Sri Lanka. <laughs> the gong didn't go until the hour was full. And uh, it was just physically just really painful. 
And, um, but then after a little while, I just became very still and there was this, there's this calm underneath. And I remember not knowing what was underneath all that disturbance. I thought maybe being a post-war German, maybe there's the original terror. I don't know what's in the universe. I was an atheist, you know, I didn't know. And I was very surprised. That's what I found underneath the clouds was peace. And, uh, and just kind of a sense of relief. And, and kind of ego kind of left. And for me, I didn't have much to defend at that point. It was good riddance, you know, kind of, you know, I, I, it was more of a relief then. And so I think I was kind of sold on the practice. And then later in meditation retreats, which were first hard to find in Germany, in the early 80s, but then I came in 84 to the States and met Jack Cornfield in 86. Uh, I did a lot of these 10-day retreats. And yes, there was a lot of, you know, have to confront your demons kind of thing. But I kind of always knew I had to confront my demons. You know, it wasn't really a question for me. I knew there was no shortcut. The um, the demons that you talk about, I mean, the, these things that are lurking somewhere underneath, you know, um, I think it was uh, uh, Carl Jung who said, you know, beneath the, was it the, beneath the threshold of consciousness, everything is seething with life, you know. Right. And, and you know, there's there's all this stuff going on that we're not, very conscious of how how healthy is it to know about it or is it about confronting it and actually dealing with it and letting it go because it, i mean it's, it's all very well saying i have this problem this this alcoholism this, these behavioral mm -hmm. problems these anger problems because of this these things that happened to me as a child i mean does yeah. does actually knowing that actually make it any better or does it you know, is, is there something more that you have to do? Yeah, it's knowing it, but you also have to feel it, you know, feel it in the body. And I always, even though I have been Jungian, psychodynamically trained, I also did a, a three-year Gestalt training and a lot of embodied dream work, um, which is quite, you know, it's Jungian, but it's also quite sensate. You really embody the images. I love, I just love that work. And um, I think we have to really feel it. And um, then it, it, it goes by itself at some point. I think there is a danger of um, kind of getting stuck in, in the murk of looking at the same thing over and over again. And then it's maybe like a real stuck in mud that doesn't go forward anymore. And I hope a good therapist would recognize that. And I think that's why I always love to have a spiritual practice and a psychological practice side by side. You know, the spiritual practice is more about process. You know, like I feel the anger arising and passing away you know, the process of it. While in psychotherapy more, oh, I'm so angry at my mother or at my father or at my boss, or, you know, and I put him on a chair and I yell at him or whatever I'm doing, you know. And so I felt that both of those practices really are complementary. And I remember when I started in the 80s and then I got my PhD in clinical psychology, um, there was quite a divide between the psychological and the spiritual and might be still in the UK. I think in, in California, it's now coming really together. You know, even insurance companies pay for mindfulness now, believe it or not. But I think in Germany and uh, European countries, it's still more divided maybe. I don't know, but I think it is. And, um, 
and it's in a way it's a shame you know uh, there is this uh, word spiritual bypass yeah which is you know you use your spiritual practice to avoid um your deep dirty emotions but then there i recently heard from actually a fellow called lock kelly a different word it's called the psychological underpass it's a brilliant word. It's when you stay only in the psychological and muck around, muck around, but you don't have the other side. Or like Jung called it the teleological, you know, right. the, for, the forward looking one. I mean, uh, th that is, I mean, there's, there's a lot of truth in that. I get mindfulness and meditation often go hand in hand with kind of images of happy beautiful people uh, particularly white people sitting in beautiful locations drinking reading poetry and you know drinking delicious cups of coffee in, in the morning you know that kind of thing but mm. actually you know real mindfulness is actually about getting getting into the dirt with what why? you're feeling and how you're and why you're feeling it and how can you how can i deal with this is there i mean you've talked about psychotherapy going hand in hand with the kind of spiritual aspects of this is there a danger that if we are repeating those traumatic events and like you said coming coming face to face with the, those things that have kind of harmed us in the past but not actually dealing with it that we could end up doing more harm than good and, and kind of reinforcing those those negative behaviors that have that come as a result of that if we keep reliving those those terrible experiences mm. That we get stuck in the psychological underpass. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. It's a good term. No? I mm. thought that was so brilliant. I just heard it two weeks ago, and um, yeah, you know there might be. So that's why I was always really grateful that I had my spiritual practice. And I don't know, did you ever do a ten-day retreat? No, I, I never did. But I heard actually Jack Cornfield talk about the. Um, the Vipassana facelift. He said that, you know, people yeah. come out of these, these retreats and they look 10 really? years younger. Yeah. Really so. They do. Yeah. I, I just did a four week retreat and I, people told me, Oh, wow. You know, what did you do? I said, well, I just sat four weeks, you know, <laughs> and uh, um, it, it's true. Uh, something in you relaxes, I guess, even your facial muscles, but um, uh what was the question again? Tell just, me. Just without, because they, you know, it's very popular at the moment, mindfulness, meditation, yeah, all this yeah, kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. But without professional therapy, sometimes mm. I wonder if we're going to be doing more harm than good by, by getting into something that we don't have the tools to deal with. Yes, the things from our past, you know, uh, yeah. that we're, we're not um, proficient in tackling. Right. Well, you know, it's quite interesting, at least at Spirit Walk, where I go a lot. It's in, in Marin in uh, north of uh, San Francisco, uh, Jack's Meditation Center. Most of the meditation teachers are also therapists. Okay. Yeah. They have at least a master's degree. Not everybody, but many of them and have some training. And um, you have an interview every two days or so, and, uh, and, and it's quite spotted if there is really something coming up that is too much. In Sri Lanka, there was none of that. But, <laughs> but nowadays, I think in many good retreats, or I, I give retreats sometimes, at least before COVID, I did. And um, maybe this fall in Ireland. But uh, usually we do interviews, you know, even on a weekend retreat, have at least a half hour chat with everybody privately to see and then maybe make a recommendation. You know, I think spiritual direction and psychological direction go hand in hand there to see what a person needs. And uh, yeah, I agree with that. But maybe I wanted to add one thing. The last 10 years, I really got interested in um, not just Vipassana, but also what may be a more Western form of Dzogchen or Mahamudra meditation. Okay, I'm not aware of this one. 
it's uh, uh, it's called nowadays sometimes a little bit misnomer effortless mindfulness or they they don't see awareness just moment by moment but they see awareness as the field quality of awareness you know okay. as something you can actually um touch into that's always there and you know in different mystical traditions they might call it the great mystery or they might call it the sacred or you know something that is there that you can actually uh, uh, experience and um and the tibetans have these until recently very very secretly kept pointing out instructions how because see after a 10-day retreat but you have to sit for a long time very quiet you come to this usually there is two three days of really feeling restless and un uncomfortable then there is the big heartache oh you know it's like my uncle peter here he is you know like He's coming up from the dead, you know, and being quite scary. And that lasts for a few days. And then that kind of morphs into a sense of lightness and almost blissfulness. And it's almost, it's like spiritual energy breaks through. And then there are these insights. Ah, oh, okay. Uncle Peter, who was so mean to me, was actually quite abused himself and there's a sense of forgiveness, but it comes by itself. You know, it's like there is a sense of resolution, which usually that's how retreats go, you know, but you have to sit long and hard for eight hours a day to get there. And uh, with these pointing out instructions, you get to this uh, experience of spiritual energy much actually in my morning meditation. So that's I teach now a hybrid between more traditional mindfulness and these pointing out instructions where awareness is moment by moment, but it's also something that uh, you can experience that is just already there. If you don't have, as the Tibetans say, if you don't have so much dust on your eyes. Yeah, that's beautiful. You know? Yeah. And and I find and I've described that in my book, I think was uh, step 11, letting the mystery in. And actually, I don't know if you heard about this uh, fairly new therapy, IFS, internal family systems. No, it's in the States, like the new scream, so to speak. It's a bit like warming up gestalt and some other stuff. And they actually talk about how they use this. They say, this can be part of our psycho-spiritual container, you know, to hold our wounded parts and ourselves within this container of the therapeutic relationship, but also of the more, you know, that, that energy that is actually there and we can experience. And this could become a spiritual bypass if we don't watch out. But it also can make us more to speak about resilience, or it could also give us a sense of, because being in this place, it's a bit like athletes talk about a flow state. You know, it's like you're very alert and very present. And you can actually use it in your mindfulness practice. You can be very practiced, very uh, alert and present with the anger arising and passing through, you know, but you come from a bigger container. I think that's why it's called effortless mindfulness sometimes or awake awareness. People haven't quite agreed on a name yet in the West. And so I find this is actually a third thing coming in that is quite interesting in the healing because it gives a greater, greater space. Is it? I mean, it sounds a lot like, um, uh, you know, in, in, you talked about uh, Buddhists saying that, you know, life is suffering and yeah. also attachment is suffering. 
is it yeah. a kind of ultimate forgiveness and ultimate release um in and into just letting it go just let, letting go of all the trauma just letting mm -hmm. go uh, tara brock when she does her meditation she talks about feeling from the inside out and and becoming a kind of field of awareness is it just about kind of ultimate release just saying let it go i'm not going to hold on to this anymore and, it, and this is where that maybe the vipassana mm -hmm. facelift comes from you know there's no stress you're not you're not clenching you're not grasping anymore i mean well, i don't I say that's half of the coin. Right. It's definitely true, but I think the Vipassana facelift um, all comes from really letting go or letting be. Sometimes yeah. I like let it be better than let it go. Um, of, let's say, with, with my uncle Peter, who was qu quite mean at times, you know, realize when I realized, oh, he was a 17 year old prisoner of war in Africa, you know, I realized no wonder he became so rigid. And for some reason, suddenly I could forgive him, not condoning, not whitewashing, but, you know, saying he's also a person, you know, and suddenly the anger was, you know, kind of gone. And um, so I think that is half of it. But I think there is, uh, do you know Alan Wallace? Uh, I know the name, but I, I'm not. Yeah, uh, he is well kind of uh, in the Dalai Lama tradition. He has sometimes this term, he says, life rises up to meet us. Yep. And so there is also something a priori there. If we are ready to feel it, it's, it's right here. I think Ram Das talked about it quite a lot. I suppose there's that um, the whole thing, you know, if um, uh, when the when the student is ready, the teacher appears, you know, there's that kind of aspect to it. And yeah. I, I have a, a, a saying that I, I kind of thought up um, and I'm quite pleased with myself because it's quite catchy and it but it just resonates there. You know, when you step up to life, life will step up to meet you. And it's, you oh, know, wow. which is quite, um, there's a bit of synchronicity there, I think. Between, Can I quote you? <laughs> yeah, well, I think you already have with uh, Alan Wallace's um, uh, book yeah. there, because they're very similar ideas. You know, it's mm. when, we, when we can face up to things, um, then the things will come to be faced, you know. And but, you know, it's not even when we are ready to face up to it, but there are also these moments like... Uh, one of my clients, it's the stories in the book, he gave me permission to mention it. It's a, he's a psychiatrist and he had went to Stanford, studied medicine. He came from a very poor background, so it was a big step for him, maybe too big a step. He came from a poor Mexican background and he uh, became manic. And there was this time where he was standing on a balcony ready to jump off. And he said, if there's anybody help me. And suddenly this great energy came in and there was this moment of love, you might say. And he didn't step down and he did not kill himself. And I think it took him a year in whatever hospitals to recover but he became an amazing psychiatrist and he tells the story to his patients if it's appropriate you know which makes them feel not so crazy and um so in some ways you couldn't say he he wasn't psychological until then you know that wasn't his culture from el paso or wherever he was from so he um something anyhow came in and and met him yeah you know what i mean yeah i don't think it's always so linear psychological i mean do you think these things that do come to meet us do you think they are things from out out there in in the universe or do you think they are cognitive biases do you think there are subconscious um i I had an uh, interview with Martha Beck. I, I always refer to this interview. And she talks about her, her spirit mule, which is just a kind of a persona that she gives to her, um, to her intuition. And she oh. says, notice what you notice, because that yeah. is your subconscious trying to tell you something. Because we're, 
we're awash with information all the time. Yeah, so strange yeah. things are happening all the time, but it's what we tune into that actually yeah. tells us something about what's going on with ourselves. You know, so when we when we see those signs or when we get those messages, it's actually our own kind of psyche, if you like, or whatever is going on in, yeah. inside us that is picking, picking that like a buffet, if you like, of information. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, it's true. What is intuition? I think intuition is more... Um, I know this Christian mystic, Cynthia Bogo, she's quite interesting. She talks about the heart as the organ of psycho-spiritual connection. I think it's physiological, psychological, spiritual connection and perception. And I think intuition, at least I think the Greeks thought it was sitting in the heart. And I, I would agree with them. And uh, I think that's what the ancient Greeks believed. And uh, there is something where the different levels of being connect. You know what I mean? So Absolutely, it's hard yeah. to know what's inside, what's outside. And I, I kind of doubt it's a person, person somewhere. It's more, who knows, something formless, timeless, which maybe isn't even a being. Maybe it's just, who knows, you know, like, it's a great mystery. I mean, is, is it even important that we know who or what it is, uh, other than just what, what's no. the message here? Right. I, that's what I think. You know, I'm quite happy to say my mind is just not equipped to figure this one out. And when we try, we just anthropomorphize. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then it gets dangerous, you know, then it becomes a power tool or whatever, you know. And uh, so maybe just stay humble and yeah. And to say that, that I'm, I'm, I've had an experience and it's telling me this, so I'm going to deal with it in this way. Yeah. And, uh, and stay with the experience. Yeah, absolutely. The direct experience of whatever it is. We've, we've kind of touched on your book. I mean, the whole, the whole reason mm. we, we started the conversation was to really talk about the, the ideas in your book about how to identify emotional and behavioral patterns through the lens of uh, loving awareness is what you, you've um, yeah. talked about. And that there are 12 steps um, mm -hmm. through the book. Um, what, would, what would bring someone to your book in the first place? I know for mm -hmm. most people, when they embark on a journey like this of kind of trying to fix mm -hmm. themselves, they must come to a point where they feel so broken that mm -hmm. I, I think it was, um, I can't remember her name, Elizabeth Gilbert. She said in, in anyone's transformations, there is a moment where they get tired of their own bullshit. <laughs> yeah, and, that's uh, right. And, uh, but I, I know that, um, you know, Jack Cornfield, he came from a, a difficult family background. Yeah, and that was what launched exactly. him on his journey for most people mm. who go through something like this, there, there comes a kind of crucial pain point where they can no longer sit with their suffering anymore i mean do you do you think that is a, a vital part of the journey or do you think we can embark mm -hmm. on this journey and, and come to what you're talking about in heart medicine without having that pain point i think the pain point definitely helps uh, and and who knows why people are who they are you know um in the west we think it's all um just our childhood uh, and the Dalai Lama was asked if he believed in nurture or nature. And he said, if there were only nurture and nature, that is like if we lost the key and we decided can be only under a streetlight because it's the only place we can see. But there are other possibilities. So why we have longings or so who knows? But I do think some pain point definitely helps and others may have a longing for other reasons which we yeah. don't know a longing it's for change or... yeah i mean i think it's uh was it thomas aquinas who said uh, the path to god is not in steps but in longings okay i've not heard that before yeah that's very powerful i like that yeah you know, because the longing is deeper, it's in the heart, no? 
And I mean, a longing can be a longing to be free of suffering. Right. Not just a longing for for something or someone or some knowing. Yeah. But it can be a longing for change or a longing for, um, mm-hmm. you know, help or recovery. Um, so, so let's talk a little bit about the book then. So the book is called Heart Medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we know that we're we're stuck yes. in? The- there it is and a beautiful book it is too um how do we know we're stuck in patterns then i mean is there do we mm-hmm. is there something we yeah. start to kind of recognize right the first step is to recognize and often we recognize that we have uh feeling something in our body you know we suddenly feel tight in our chest or nauseous or energy just leaves us or we get so angry that we feel too energized, maybe beyond our comfort. And so feeling something in the body is part of it. Feeling emotions that seem stronger than what's warranted. Um, then, um, And these are things I, that happen repeatedly repeatedly you know feeling oh why me being kicked out of the book club why does it make me so upset you know I didn't like the people anyhow you know (laughs) so you know but it's just not letting me sleep and I feel so rejected you know it's like why do I in the world do I not I'm not able to let this run off my back or we start ruminating, you know, why does this wake me up in the middle of the night at three or at five and I get stuck in a loop, in a lerp loop. And so uh, that's one. And then feeling uh, maybe, you know, trauma symptoms like feeling dizzy or tunnel vision or suddenly like shutting down. Um or dissociatingly too angry. Uh, so they are, or generalizing, you know, why does this being kicked out of my book club make me feel the world hates me? You know, it's just a book club, you know, it's not the whole world, but it feels like it. And so that is one uh, way of realizing we were lurped. And then to use those um, methodologies, these practices like mindfulness gives a wonderful practice to notice, oh, anger arising, anger falling away, or um, uh, noticing, oh, yeah, thinking, you know, thinking, thinking. And, uh, and then self-compassion is so important, which is maybe hard for us. Europeans, um, you know, because it makes us feel weak and uh, and not tough. In Germany, there was actually a bad word for people who are weak. Uh, to be sensitive was kind of ridiculed. And so I, I got that a lot. And so I had to really learn this idea of self-empathy and self-compassion, that that wasn't pity, self-pity, that that wasn't weakness, but that's more like a Martin Buber said, an I thou, you know, a respectful uh, seeing myself. Yeah. recognizing myself with a sense of warmth that and be, kindness that can be incredibly difficult if you do have traits or repeating um behavior patterns that you're you're ashamed of that you don't you know you're not yeah. proud of how do you um then become compassionate with yourself about that it's you know? a process i think it starts with a longing or an intention And then uh, just learning, maybe having the, I I find a good half step is often the intention. You know, yeah, maybe one day I will be able to be kinder to myself, you know, and then it makes it more authentic. And uh, one day I can forgive 
myself or somebody, maybe not now, but before I die, <laughs> you know, or in the last 10, maybe in 10 years I can. And then often it happens earlier. Yeah. So I think putting the intention or the longing out uh, kind of um, paves the way. And does the, do the steps that you outline in your book, do they help to, you know, take you on that, that journey? How does that work? Yeah, it does. You know, I think, uh, let's say with my journey of feeling um, rejected or abandoned and uh, maybe bring up my uncle Peter as somebody who was quite rejecting of me um, as the, you know, illegitimate kid in the Catholic family, um, you know, noticing first my anger was important and uh, being able to be with it mindfully, then having some compassion for myself, you know, the kid I was, and then at some point actually compassion for him, you know, uh, that came much later. And then able to be with the suffering, you know, like everything changes, but we still have to be with it or breathe through it and uh, not, not run away and distract and go to the whiskey bottle or the TV or shopping or whatever we do, you know, and so... Um, and then uh, forgiveness, again, is not something we can uh, just decide on and do and press a button. But um, uh, maybe start with a longing or an intention. You know, I, I let's say my Uncle Peter, I don't want to die without having forgiven him because it's a burden for me. I think Jack Cornfield said it really beautifully. He said, the person who hurt you, your perpetrator, is probably sitting in the Bahamas with a Mai Tai. And you are sitting there smoldering along, you know. And so it's a burden for us. And uh, so, so forgiveness, holding that intention, that longing, you know, to at some point be able to let lay that burden down is a, is a good one. And then, um, you know, letting the mystery in, you know, allowing for some practices that allow a wider perspective is important. And is the, hmm? is the ultimate goal of this and the goal that, you know, we, we go through these practices, this, this therapy, we go follow the steps in your book are we ultimately looking to be the kind of uh, most authentic and best versions of ourselves? Or is it about being united with kind of who we came here to be in, in respect to the universe, in respect to the world we live in, you know, and, and experiencing that kind of oneness with, with life? How about both? I don't think it's an either or. You know, I think when we feel the support of life, we can go out and be engaged yeah. without burning out so quickly. I think as a bit of an activist myself, I believe in engagement uh, and that that's meaningful. And, you know, I say that in the last chapter of my book uh, about service, you know, that uh, serving sets us free because we are not isolated, we are connected. We are not weak and helpless, we are strong. We are able to give, you know, we are um, interconnected through our service. And uh, so I think there are many good reasons why that is so important. That actually would be a, a kind of good note to kind of end on really good or a good question. One that I've tried to explore um, many times. I've spoken to Trudy Goodman 
on the podcast mm-hmm. jack cornfield's beloved he he calls her um, i know her, yeah yeah and uh, you know there's this question how can we find peace in ourselves without turning our back on the troubles of the world and how can we become engaged with the troubles of the world while still protecting the peace within ourselves i think that's that's the question and um I think maybe holding that question is the answer, you know, because I don't think there's one point, you know, I think we are all the time teetering between personal and universal truth. And um, when I found now during COVID, which is quite isolating for so many of us, maybe you felt that with your podcast, but my sons helped me to put, I'm teaching a lot of meditation and they uh, helped me to have a platform, a Zoom platform. And um, teaching basically every day almost um, has really helped me during the time of uh, COVID to stay connected like Sunday mornings at 10. It's probably our biggest group that two, well, half to two thirds from people from Europe, because it's 10 in the morning, it's six in the evening in England, Ireland, seven in Portugal and Austria. And so quite a few people come in Sunday evening and become your Sunday morning and some middle of the day. And uh, it just was so touching to have this 40 people or so together uh, and have a talk, meditate together. I do it with my husband, who is a hospice doctor and author. Um, he wrote a book in Ireland, which was a bestseller, uh, Mortally Wounded uh, by Michael Carney. And so he's quite well known in Europe. So we together um do this and it just has been so helpful to feel interconnected and to have people from California connect to people in Eastern Austria and and to go through this together every Sunday morning or evening. So I think those, I think Zoom has really provided us with something. Do you feel doing your podcast during COVID has helped you? Um, well, I initially the podcast was always face to face. So mm-hmm. I would meet someone face to face and we were recorded that way. But when COVID happened, I had no choice but to um, get onto Zoom. And it, my world suddenly got so much bigger because I, yeah. could, I could reach out to people in America, I could reach out to people in Australia, and, and really suddenly um, I was soaking up a lot of wisdom personally by speaking to such a, a much wider um, cohort of, of wise and, and wonderful people. And, um, and yeah, I, I, it, it, it was the kind of um, the limiting boundary conditions of, of COVID. Uh, actually made things you know brought opportunities together and brought made things happen I guess um and that, so interesting no Isn't yeah it? absolutely and but it also makes me what you were talking about there's a there was I can't remember who said it someone very very wise but they talked about um joy being in in service yeah and, I um, think it is yeah. yeah and I mean there are people out there who are on the front line of humanitarian crises they're you know Mm. protesting they're going face to face with you know speaking truth to power and things like that and i i look at those people and i think if i was to do what you do it would probably Mm. crush me i don't think i could deal with seeing that the kind of raw edge of of the dark side of humanity if you like and coming face to face with it Mm. i don't think i could cope with that and maintain my inner peace so how do i still you know, be that activist, you know, and maybe it is through service, like you say, maybe it is by helping other people in other ways. You know, maybe that's what we all need to think about. In and to have my life. meditation practice. Yeah. And, you know, it really helped me to expand my mindfulness meditation to this more awake awareness meditation, you know, be mindful from the place of awake awareness 
and uh, it really transformed the way I teach. So, um, and I think it's very timely because I think the world is in such a raw place that we need stronger medicines. Yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, yeah, it's really, I would love it if people join us on mindfulheartprograms.org. Yeah, it's absolutely. All it's all free. Okay. You know, I have a day job as a psychologist. And so I, I teach meditation for free because I just don't want to put a price tag on it, you know, so. Well, um, well in terms of um, finding out more about the book Heart Medicine and yeah. uh, your website, is that the best place to go? What was, what was the web, web address for that? Well, there are two. One is wadleywinningerphd.com. That's yeah. my website, which is mainly about the book. And then mindfulheartprograms.org okay. is uh, the meditation platform. But I think they are linked. Okay. So if you yeah. have one, you find the other, and you can even send me a little letter or something. I think my email is on there. And so um, I'm always glad to chat with people. And um I think you're doing a great service with your podcast. <laughs> Thank you. No, I really appreciate that. I, well, I, I think I'm scratching an itch. These are things that I need to know for myself. And I think if there are other people out there who, like me, um, are trying to find peace personally and collectively in the world, then, you know, conversations like these can help. Um, and to live, I, I kind of have the tagline, you know, it's a podcast about being well, doing well and, and living well. And I think mm. a lot of that comes from personal peace, you know, un unraveling yeah. the things that disturb us, the, the suffering that we're attached to, that mm. kind of thing. Um, but, um, and obviously, you know, speaking to people like you is, is a tonic, I find, in difficult <laughs> times. So I'm very grateful for that. But no, I, I find uh, just conversations with people who, who've really uh, gone through the, the work, the hard work to come out the other side and, and find mm -hmm. the, the kind of sense of tranquility or calm, or at least the practices and the toolkit, um, you know, the tools that can help them find that. And, and I guess that's what you're, you're offering as well with, with heart medicine, with the book, a kind of a roadmap, if you like, to, to just finding our, our calm and our peace. Yeah. And, you know, I feel just very grateful that I found this path that I was allowed to do that. And uh, and I'm just very grateful I can pass it on. Absolutely. And so I can just ask everybody who finds a bit of that to pay it forward, pass it on. Absolutely. I think that's a great message to end on. So thank mm -hmm. you so much for your time and your, your wisdom and for uh, just making me feel better about everything. I'm very grateful. Mm -hmm. Same here. Thank you so much. There you go. What a wonderful conversation with the fantastic Radley Weininger there. As I mentioned before, you can find her at radleyweiningerphd.com and also at mindfulheartprograms.org. And all of these links will, of course, be in the show notes. And just just a, a final word, just, just really letting go is such a, an amazing and powerful thing to do. And if you can learn to forgive you don't do forgiveness for the other person you do it for yourself because you deserve uh, you, you feel like you deserve better and that you've been punished enough so forgive forgive yourself forgive the world forgive those who have in your opinion uh, done something bad to you just forgive because it allows you to step into a whole new level of being and existing and you want to know what forgiveness feels like what letting go feels like is that same feeling when you take a big deep breath in and you hold it and then you let it go it's that release it's that freedom it's that freshness it's like as i mentioned in the podcast like taking off a tight hat that you've been wearing for fight far too long anyway enough rambling from me as you can tell i really really enjoyed that conversation uh, with radley and um yeah I, I really get a lot out of this this podcast and i hope you do too i'm scratching an itch here about how to find um joy and peace and realize our potential in life and i hope that you're getting that same kind of vibe from this uh, podcast too so don't forget rate review and subscribe send us a note let us know your thoughts and um yeah until next week have a lovely day.